news. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to YDHTY, the podcast for the exhausted majority who like their politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, send this to one friend you think might like it too, because there are too many of us tired of the us versus them narrative in popular media, and this podcast is designed to serve as an oasis. Now, I should also note that at the time this episode is being released, I am on vacation, probably getting a horrible sunburn. So if anything in the world has fallen apart between uh, February 17th and now, I'll address it next week. That out of the way, we are in the final of our four-part series on the national debt, and we are wrapping this up as we always do at YDHTY with my good friend Arjun Murthy at The Factual. Now, for those of you new to this podcast, The Factual is a news site that algorithmically rates news stories based on partisan lean and credibility to deliver the most accurate news with an audience that spans across the country and the political spectrum. And they recently ran a few polls related to the U.S. debt predicament. And I thought it'd be good to talk with him about what people were thinking and how they lined up against the reality of the situation. The good news is that many of my hunches were confirmed. The bad news is none of those hunches point to an easy solution. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. One thing I wanted to say while we're recording at the top of the episode, because I've been really bad about doing this in the last couple once we've done together, but Arjun and I have been doing another podcast called Unbiased, and we're now four episodes in. It's bi-monthly, so twice a month. We've had Lee Drutman, who, you know, if you've listened to this podcast, you've heard before. We've had Diane Hessen, uh, author and syndicated columnist, talk about some of the common ground shared by the different political polls. And, you know, David Henmeyer Hansen, I won't even talk about what he talked about. I will just say that he founded a software company and is a race car driver. <laughs> and for that reason alone, you should probably listen. So it's just, it's been a really, really fun thing to do. There've been some really interesting conversations. And I think you listening, if you dig YDHTY, you will absolutely dig unbiased. So check it out. I think Arjun's a fan too. He's kind of silent <laughs> right now. But. Yes, absolutely. I think it's been such a good series already. And we're just getting started. Dan and I have a list of over 100 people that we think uh, should be on the show that give you an unorthodox counter to mainstream narratives on a lot of important issues. And not contrarian for the sake of being contrarian, but contrarian because they're experts in a field and have really thought hard about a problem and are confident enough with enough data behind them to suggest that, hey, maybe there's another way to tackle this problem. The conversations we've had where folks are saying things that actually run entirely counter to what they really believe. I think what I, what I, really, what I really like about it is these are folks who are challenging their own orthodoxies, you know, not just mm -hmm. others. 
so that's my plug. We're going to give one more plug as well, because again, if you're new to YDHTY, you may not be familiar with The Factual, of which Arjun is co-founder and CEO. And uh, The Factual uses algorithms to help people find the most credible news. So ranks it by partisan spin, ranks it by credibility. And the reason Arjun and I talk at the end of every topic is because The Factual's readership really spans across the political spectrum. It spans the country geographically. They've got a good diversity of, of opinion or a good diversity of readers. And they run daily polls that ask their opinions on certain subjects. And you ran two polls on the factual last year that touch on that subject. And, and for the listener, could you just talk about what those two polls were, what questions they asked? So we ran a couple of polls over the last year that are related to debt and spending. Um, The first one that got just a ridiculous number of votes, I think over a thousand votes at this point, was on the infrastructure bill. So this was when the Democrats were proposing an expanded infrastructure plan of $3.5 trillion back in August of 21, and that got pared down a little bit by the time parts of it were finally passed. And so the question was, do you support the Democrats' $3.5 trillion expanded infrastructure plan? 853 votes, of which 69% said no, 25% said yes, and 6% said unsure. And then we had a subsequent poll, this is more recent, in December, should the U.S. government raise the debt ceiling? And here we had 489 votes, of which 55% said no, 38% said yes, and 7% said unsure. Both of them, of course, related to spending and showing a general hesitancy of the public or certainly the the factual's readership, which we think is fairly representative of the public at large, both showing a general hesitancy about spending run amok in their viewpoint. The 55% no in the debt ceiling one was surprising and kind of scared me for reasons we can get into in a little bit. As far as the the camps go, you know, you mentioned there was, there was anxiety about spending run amok. What were some of the themes, you know, what were some of the big concerns that people had in either the yes or the no camp? So on the no camp, I think a lot of people think of the government debt as a comparable to household debt. So people saying, I don't understand how we can continue on this trajectory. Look, if I was, you know, in my house, if I take out a debt, I have to pay back the debt at some point in time. And if I keep taking out debt, eventually the whole edifice collapses and I can't pay back my debt, I can't pay the interest on the debt, and I have to declare bankruptcy. So isn't the same thing going to happen with the U.S. government? And for a lot of people, their big worry is, what kind of country are we leaving to our children? If we have a government that's saddled Mm -hmm. with so much debt that it can't pay it off, what does that mean for the country that our children inherit? Will they have a a government that's not functioning? Will there be widespread unemployment or recessions? Uh, Will there be hyperinflation? These are the kinds of things that people on the no camp are worried about. And then on the yes side, there are two different things. So when it comes to debt ceiling, a lot of people said yes, because sort of matter of factly saying, look, whatever you may think of the debt being unsustainable, and nearly everybody who voted for yes, raise the debt ceiling, said this. They said, I'm not thrilled with how the government is spending. I think the government is bloated. The government has way too much administrative overhead and we need to cut spending. But the debt ceiling needs to be raised because we can't stop 
paying on debts that we owe. We've already taken these debts out. We just have to pay them off. And if we don't raise the debt ceiling, we default. We end up with uh, a lot of people who work in the government that don't get paid. And you immediately send you know, millions of families into very dire circumstances. So the people who voted yes are not thrilled with the way the U.S. government runs, but we're saying, I don't know that we have a choice um, when it comes to the debt ceiling. And then on the infrastructure yeah. side, that's more, that's different because that's straight. Could I, could I, yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry, go ahead. I want to jump in here, which is, just, so I think for the, for the no voters, <clears throat> you know, I'm going to give you something to be a little less anxious about and maybe something to be a little more anxious about, which is because one of the first things I dug into, and this was uh, with Tara Sinclair from George Washington University, is just had her explain to me how the U.S. debt market mm -hmm. works. Because logic goes, you can't take out debt without a mm -hmm. lender. Or in the case of the U.S., we can't take out debt without people buying U.S. treasuries. So what are the people buying treasuries getting that we're not getting? Because they seem to think it's a really good mm -hmm. deal. And the couple things that I, I learned in that conversation, you know, first off is you don't ever have to worry about paying off the debt as a nation. And that's the whole principle of that. Governments and nations just keep going, you know? And so the, the, the trick is, the, does the debt outgrow the economy or does it grow faster than mm -hmm. the economy? And that's, that's the real danger we're in because second episode I recorded, which was with Maya McGinnis of the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, she talked about how we're currently overspending on consumption and underspending on investment. Mm -hmm. And a great example she gave to me was Social Security, where if you look, Social Security is the one of the largest portions of the federal mm -hmm. budget. The education, one of the smallest. And you also look, if you look at from when Social Security was created till now, childhood poverty and elderly poverty have basically like mm -hmm. inverted. So now it's children are more impoverished and senior citizens aren't. And so, you know, I think to kind of address both sides here, the <clears throat> nominal debt is not as scary as where we're spending the money. And that seems to be the biggest concern. And that kind of dovetails into the next poll on infrastructure. That's right? that's right. Yeah. So on the infrastructure side, you know, whether you voted yes or no, nearly everyone said that a huge chunk of our physical infrastructure is in an utter state of disrepair. Bridges, roads, tunnels, airports, all these are just grossly overdue for repair. And of course, every couple of months or every six months you hear of some bridge collapse and it reminds everyone that, okay, this is really serious. You know, people die with this stuff. And so whether you voted yes or no for the infrastructure bill, nearly everyone said, we need to fix those things. Now, the rub really came with what the Democrats defined as infrastructure in their $3.5 trillion mm -hmm. bill. And they include provisions to help address climate change. They have provisions about free childcare for pre-K and other things that are around helping families, particularly lower-income families. Was there any sense that we should cut spending in the comments? Yeah, for sure. I, I think in general, a lot of people feel like the government 
feels too large. And again, both yeah. on the yes and the no camps, certainly in the infrastructure side, you would see it a lot more on the no camps. We don't divide our polls by partisanship because we've always said that it's not the case that people are strictly Republican or Democrat. A lot of people like ideas Mm -hmm. from both camps and dislike ideas from both camps. So it's not clear to me that we're getting a partisan reading on this. The fact that, you know, we have a fairly balanced population and yet 70% were saying no to the expanded infrastructure bill suggests to me that it cuts across party lines with a lot of people feeling like this bill feels too big. It feels like it has too much Mm. spending. And I don't know that that's... I wouldn't support that is sort of what the majority seems to be saying here. People say that, but they don't always vote that way. And the, and the reason I say this is, you know, getting back to the conversation I had with, with Maya at the CFRB, mm-hmm. it highlighted a real weakness in the way we allocate budget and the way we spend money. <clears throat> because ultimately, the elected officials, the folks in Congress who allocate budget, are incentivized to not raise taxes because voters mm-hmm. hate that. But voters love it when somebody brings money back to the yeah. district. Boy, do they love it. And and that's something that an elected official can tout. The, the interesting thing I find here is the disconnect between people who would advocate or people who are concerned about the debt and the people they ultimately elect to office. Was there any sense of that or no? I think I, I think that. that's a really good question. It goes back, I think, to the lack of choices at the polls. And so this is what Lee Drutman was talking about, that you know, at its core, our democracy doesn't give you a lot of choices. Mm-hmm. And you're sort of forced to pick the lesser of two evils. Both candidates who are there or both parties who are there say different things at the surface, like I'm going to balance the budget or I'm going to do this, but really at the end, play to their base and do exactly what you said, Dan, which is they promise that if I, if you elect me, I'm going to bring this project, we're going to do this, it's going to create all these jobs, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what people want to hear. So I think that with the lack of choices, you don't get a clear signal that people are dissatisfied with the options out there because they have no choice. They're like, well, I guess I got to pick one of these people. But if we had more choices, I wonder if we would see people picking more uh, fiscally conservative politicians who they feel are are really trying to balance the budget. But I also think the last bit I'd say is it has to be something that comes from up top and maybe is nationwide. Because what might end up happening is, let's say in your district, you have a really fiscally conservative politician and a lot of people like her and they're like, yeah, I like her. She's smart. I think she's going to do a good thing. She's really being responsible. But if all the other politicians are not like that in the other districts, then might you look over and be like, wait a minute, we're doing the right thing, but all these other people are getting huge chunks of money and huge expansion and this and that. What was the point? Why were we the good guys here? And so maybe you then get sucked in and be like, ah, well, let's... If everyone's getting a piece of it, I want a piece of it too. So I don't know if you almost have to do this from up high saying, look, guys, this situation is untenable. And we as an entire party are really committed to doing this. And here's how all of our representatives are going to behave. I don't know if anyone has the courage to say that nor the follow through on it. But maybe that's what would be required for us to see a change in the polls. I don't think they do. And I think 
the the again the weakness I've I've discovered in the way we spend money is that it is never not going to be politically palatable to run up the debt. Yeah. Never. Because if you can spend on programs and not have to tax people for it, it's it's the best of both worlds. It it makes perfect political sense. And to your point, without the level of political diversity that we need to have, you know, fiscal conservatives in the house. Without that, there's there's nobody calling for it. I think the the interesting thing is I started to dig into it as well is you have this weird scenario where a lot of the dyed in the wool blue states are actually contributing more in federal tax dollars in their taking yeah. in, right? And a lot of dyed in the wool red states are taking in more in federal tax dollars and they're sending to Washington. And it seems to me like we have this political climate where there are people asking to be taxed more so they can send money to other people who don't want it. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't make a ton of sense to me. And I think also, you know, in our, in our, like when we talked about infrastructure, Arjun, or when we talked about the war in Afghanistan in past episodes, every time it seems that the general opinion of, of people <clears throat> is that when the U.S. tries to do something big, it doesn't always end up well. And they're generally not happy. But my, my big question is, are we better off just giving it back to the states? Are we better off letting Massachusetts, for example, where I live or California, where you live, be these high tax states that provide a lot of services and don't necessarily contribute the amount of federal money that they used to so they can keep that and spend it internally? Income taxes that are collected are to fund things that are only possible by the federal government. For example, border security, yeah. the Fed and the Mint and the Treasury and all that, and the State Department and all, all of our foreign affairs efforts and things like that. So there's some things that are intrinsically federal government stuff, immigration, et cetera. We pay to keep that infrastructure up at the federal government. I think a lot of things do devolve back to the state. For example, I think even when you have to upgrade physical infrastructure like bridges and roads, it's not the federal government that I think makes the decision. They dole out the money back to states based on some formula or something like that. And then the states get to decide where that goes. So the money does come back. So I don't know what would rein in our spending. I also don't know if you, I don't know if you know, Dan, as a fraction of our economy, is the size of our government small, appropriate, or large compared to other countries? Mm. I don't actually know. Yeah, so overall, it's it's tough to say because you've got, you know, what other countries don't have is they don't have the same, like, system we have where you have federal, state, and then even local taxes. Mm -hmm. As a total tax burden as percent of GDP, we're pretty low. Got it. Right now. I think a lot of people think that yeah. our government is fat and bloated. And at the state government level, I visited our state assemblyman and our state senator, and as well as our federal representative's office, who's Jackie Spear, uh -huh. and her office is down the street. And what struck me when I visited all three offices is how spartan and small they were in like some nondescript yeah. office building, very simple, nothing fancy whatsoever. And, you know, this is a fairly rich district for Jackie Spear, but there's nothing fancy about her setup. And I thought her staff and, and all the staff of our state assemblymen and, and senator were nice and cordial and very thoughtful about issues mm -hmm. that were pertinent to our district and our state. So 
All I'm saying is it's mm-hmm. funny that we all think it's really bloated. And I'm sure there is bloat in government and somewhere. But at least when I actually visited these offices and met all of our representatives, nothing about those setups seemed grandiose and wasteful to me, which is nice. That's the truth. It's funny. So in college, I interned for our state representative. And I rem- and this was right during a time when there was a big crusade against government spending. And arguably, you know, Massachusetts is a fairly large state government. But where they cut spending was kind of hysterical because, like, you couldn't find paper clips. <laughs> like, they'd be like, we're not going to buy office supplies. And it was, yes, it's great that they're not spending a lot of money or they're not, you know, the offices are fairly modest and, and so on. But the flip side of it is, like, where is the money going? Yeah. You know, what? what is it? Is it reaching the intended recipient? And I just got... I have some stats here as yeah. well. As a percentage of GDP, the U.S. ranks last in terms of wealthy nations. So we're 35%. To give you the other end, Finland is 53.5%. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And so, and, and even if we look, you know, we just go a little further up to Canada, you know, they're 41%. And, you know, Canada, for example, has universal health care, which is something the left really <laughs> mm-hmm. wants. So, so I, you know, I, I didn't really dig into kind of what the ideal amount is. I think there's a general hunch that the further the money has to travel, the less efficiently it's spent. To your question of where the money is going, there's a really nice chart uh, from the Washington Post. This is 10 years old, but I think it's probably still roughly accurate. So, you know, we take in somewhere like $3 trillion uh, in taxes. About a third of that is from individual income tax. A small amount is from corporate tax. And then the rest is from social security and payroll taxes. And out of that, where it goes, it sort of breaks down to two big categories of discretionary and mandatory. So mandatory is social security, Medicare, Medicaid, probably is like a a trillion and a half of our deficit or our, our spending every year. And then on the discretionary side, defense is the big bogey, you know, somewhere around 900 billion, probably a trillion at this point. Yep. And so if, you're, if people are wondering, where is this money going? Those are sort of the big, big chunks. And then the one that's sort of the, the canary in the coal mine, if you will, is the interest on our debt. And so to wrap this mm-hmm. all back, <clears throat> what worries fiscal hawks and people that say, you know, there are a lot of people that say, ah, oh, the debt doesn't matter because we have an infinite timeline on the debt. And, you know, unlike a household, you don't have to pay your debt by a fixed date. You can just roll it over and issue new debt. And that's why, the, you know, the debt doesn't matter. Well, fiscal hawks worry that eventually interest rates rise at some point. And then the interest on our debt starts to become so significant that that's where most of our spending is going. And that is a bad formula. You can't actually pay for the programs you want because you're just busy servicing the debt increasingly, you know, every time. So again, I'm not an economist and and I don't fully understand where that line is, but I think that's where people are worried about. So right now, you know, the interest in our debt probably, I don't know, it looks like from this chart, maybe around 300 billion. Um, I don't know if at some point it crosses into the trillions category itself. Let's say interest rates go up four or 5%. We, we know interest rates are going to go up in the near future based on the Fed trying to calm down inflation. And then if it stays up there, then the interest on our debt rises. And then if it does, how all that trickles back, it sounds bad. Again, I'm, I'm not an economist, so I don't know, but it sounds like that's the thing that worries people that are fiscal hawks about running an infinite 
deficit and in an ever-increasing debt pile. I actually got the figure on what that interest rate spike would do in my conversation with Maya McGinnis, mm-hmm. and which she told me is a 1% increase in interest rates would result in a $200 billion increase in our debt service payments per year. So, and to put that in perspective, I think Build Back Better was $200 billion a year. Yeah. So that's that's effectively an infrastructure bill being eaten up in just monthly, month, your monthly yeah. minimum. Yeah, and there's a real threat to that. And and the other warning I got from, from Tara Sinclair in the earlier episodes is that bond markets are fickle. So she wouldn't postulate what might turn investors against the U.S. There's actually a lot going in our favor because we are in the United States, we are the the largest consumer economy. So there's an advantage to just holding dollars. Mm -hmm. And like Social Security, for example, that's all in U.S. Treasuries. Like there's a lot of there's there's a lot of reasons why the U.S. dollar is in demand. And, you know, in in the last episode I did with Barry Eichengreen, who's a, an economist out of UC Berkeley, really interesting guy, wrote a whole book just outlining the history of sovereign debt from ancient Greece to today. And something I didn't know is FDR actually renegotiated the national debt with international creditors. During the Great Depression, he, he decoupled it from the gold standard just said it's no longer redeemable for gold. And of course it created some tumult in the debt market. But you know, the thing is, is international creditors, they're not going to light their money on fire. So if all of a sudden something happens and the U S is no longer able to honor those commitments, you know, all these holders have to determine, do we just let the whole thing tank or do we renegotiate? And typically they renegotiate, you know, now that hurts us for future spending. But part two to that is that, once you go through that restructuring, you can then provide more reliable terms to investors, which is the second thing they want. So, you know, I think the tall and short of it is like, let's say things got really bad. It wouldn't be a good thing for all of us. You know, our quality of life would certainly be diminished if the U.S. had to renegotiate its debt. The flip side is it's not this like dollar collapse where all of a sudden, you know, we're all like riding around on motorcycles with shotguns and chainsaws, <laughs> like in the road warrior, you know, scavenging for food. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it, it, it just, it's, it doesn't happen. Yeah. Way. Um, My guess is what's coming yeah. somewhere in the future is that we'll shift to saying this whole way we're running the government is unsustainable and we need someone to rein it in. And, and probably the Republican party, since that's close to their platform anyways, it's in the near term, I don't know if it's this election cycle, but somewhere I, I assume that their platform of smaller government starts to appeal to a broader audience because it seems like the majority of the people are worried about spending. Which might be a good place to cap it off too, is the one perspective I've gotten on the debt that was that's the most fascinating out of all these conversations is that you know very often we view the issue of the national debt as a as a negotiation between financial markets and governments. <coughs> But the reality is we are the government. So it's really a three-part negotiation. And in in democratic governments, part of that negotiation is with the electorate, with voters themselves, right? And a great example is, I don't know if you remember about, you know, almost 10 years back now, Greece had a tremendous debt crisis, 
right? This huge austerity measures placed on them. It resulted in the election of this far left-wing government that was much less likely to do the things global investors wanted. And so I don't see a ton of evidence that ever that there's ever a sensible exit. Like people decide, you know what, let's tackle this now. Like it's usually huge unrest, a huge political backlash occurs, and then bondholders are forced to renegotiate the terms because again, the, the people who ultimately elect the government that determines the terms just won't stand for it. And that gets us into a much, I think, bigger conversation about some of the inequities that exist in the economy today and how you know, a debt crisis might actually resolve yeah. them. Albeit I think with a lot of thinking. I think the <clears throat> the net of it is that as long as the US economy stays strong and has good output, we can get away with all sorts of spending nonsense at the government level. Because people yeah. who hold our security say, Well, you know, I expect that the economy will continue to churn out and, and continue to produce stuff. You know, you think about Greece or you think about even the UK, which came close to defaulting at, at one point. And I think fundamentally what happens in those economies is they're much smaller. They're much less dynamic. And I don't think there's as much mm-hmm. faith that those economies can produce stuff and are engines yeah. of growth. So it's happening all over Europe. Italy, for example, has huge issues, Portugal, Spain, what have you. I think their economies are just far less dynamic and far less productive than the U.S. government or the U.S. economy. Mm -hmm. So it's not, we shouldn't necessarily take the lessons from them and say, well, look, they had to rein it in and it was so awful. So isn't that what we're going to have to do in the U.S. as well? I think only if we thought that the economy here was just going to implode for some reason and innovation would come to grind to a halt and productivity would stop growing and all these other elements, then I think maybe there's, there's more worry. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider leaving it a review. We need to share the light of YDHTY with the world, folks. You can also find the polls we discussed and more on thefactual.com and also our new podcast, Unbiased. Be sure to check it out. Now, both this conversation and the ones I've had earlier in the series have taught me a few things. The first is that no one really knows how the U.S. debt market works. This is my third or fourth stab at the subject, and I am just beginning to understand what the Federal Reserve actually does and how that influences the economy. Now, the second is that however much people may profess to be worried about the debt, there's not a voter around who likes less government services and higher taxes. And the political calculation for spending on borrowed money is too easy to pass up. And it almost seems as if there's no way to avoid racking up mountains and mountains of debt when times are good, unless we take the purse strings out of the hands of a democratically elected body, which is problematic to say the least. Now the third, and this is like the little, it's not like a, a, a silver lining it's maybe like a less gray cloud with fewer lightning bolts but the third is that the worst case scenario is more likely to be a restructuring of the u.s debt than a dollar collapse that turns america into an episode of the walking dead and it'll mean some pain it'll probably mean a few less flat screen tvs for all of us 
it might even mean a long-term decline in the quality of life for most Americans. But I think the bigger story here is that our economy is out of balance. And every time this happens, there's a huge renegotiation between those who hold the money and the populace who don't. And it's really a rewriting of the social contract. And I don't know what that looks like, but you all know how I feel about this decade being one of the most transformative in American history. And I think the little actions all of us take over this decade are gonna make all the difference. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's editorial advisor and producer is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.